0: One GP said, if she's not eating and drinking, that's okay. She will eventually. Just leave her be. That stuff used
1: to make me so angry. Consumers and carers are in the dark a lot of the time around knowing also what options are available to them.
2: I only really received care in a medical setting and that was when I'd reached the point of being medically unstable and needing to be hospitalised
3: Almost all of the guests that we've had on this show have talked about the barriers that they've faced when they were looking for effective treatment.
1: There is an absolute limited understanding around what to do or where to refer these patients.
3: So we've decided to spend this entire episode looking more closely at these roadblocks to care, what caring professionals are doing to address them, as well as what we can do ourselves while we're waiting for things to change.
4: There are so many barriers that people may encounter when they're reaching out for eating disorder support.
3: This is the Butterfly Let's Talk podcast from your friends at Butterfly, your national voice for body image issues and eating disorders. I'm Sam Iken. The common barriers or roadblocks to care, if you like, can include things like a lack of specialist clinicians, lack of trained GPs to recognise the signs and offer support themselves or refer you on to a specialist. And then we have other things like the stigma or ambivalence that stop people looking for help in the first place. And of course, then there's the cost of care, which can sometimes be prohibitive.
1: The stigma associated with uh, weight and shape uh, bias in relation to an eating disorder is a significant factor. I am Dr Kim Hurst. Currently, I am the president of the Australian and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders. I also um, am the clinical lead at Rabina Private Hospital here in Queensland. It takes patients a lot of courage to actually go and say, I need help, and then to have a professional negate their kind of, um, you know, distress and say, oh, no, you don't need that. What you need is something else. It's really actually quite, um, I guess, distressing. Most of my patients come to me and say, I don't feel sick enough. I'm unworthy of care. And that's one thing that I really think needs to change in terms of educating, particularly the frontline workers.
3: Someone who knows all too well what Dr Hurst is talking about here is Imogen, our next guest. And like so many of us, she's been on a very long and windy road to recovery. She can relate to the feeling of being unworthy of care or just not looking for it because you don't feel sick enough.
2: Unless you become medically insta- unstable, it's so, so hard to get external validation. I developed an eating disorder when I was around 16. Throughout my adolescence, I suffered quite severely with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I definitely think that my eating disorder has very obsessive compulsive origins. And when I was about 16, I, I went on a medication actually. And I was just um, warned by my doctors that this medication, you know, it might, it might affect your weight. Just, just watch what you eat more. And it was just enough <laughs> ammunition, really. I developed a, a, a very obsessive relationship with food very quickly. You know, I took the watch what you eat a little bit too far. And very quickly, my obsessive tendencies just rooted themselves in food and weight. It lends itself to a lot of a lot of shame, I think, uh, and shame is not conducive with healing. You can't you can't heal from something that you're ashamed of, and I also think it leads its, it lends itself to a reluctance to seek help again, which is certainly also not conducive with healing. You know, help and external validation is such a pivotal part of recovery.
3: Stigma and a general lack of understanding were things that caused roadblocks for mother of three Jeanette, who has two daughters who had very different journeys with eating disorders.
0: My family had no idea what an eating disorder was. Just make a eat. um should mm. be fine. So, and that was fairly common, really, back then. so you don't share it with too many people. And people have no understanding of it, and, and make their own assumptions, I suppose. So, and plus, it's a you know, it's a mental health issue. It's an illness that people struggle with anyway. You know, when you beat yourself up as a parent, I remember seeing one doctor who, you know, oh well, you know, um, <laughs> did you have any sort of depression that you've, you've given in utero to your child, or you know, all of this stuff. You beat yourself up enough without having crazy comments like
4: that. You, you wouldn't say to someone, why don't you just stop having cancer, would you? Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's exactly the same. And, and I think we've got to that place where we realise that anyone can experience anxiety, anyone can experience depression. There's no kind of uh, particular body that we believe that comes in. Hi, I'm Dr Gemma Sharp. I'm a senior research fellow at Monash University, and I'm also a clinical psychologist.
3: Dr. Sharp says the stigma stems from a lack of understanding.
4: Uh, I think bodies like the Butterfly Foundation and, and groups around Australia are doing a wonderful job of providing professional education to people uh, in the health professional field just to help better recognise eating disorders and uh, help shift some of the stigma around when people present with eating disorders and helping them get the care they deserve. Uh, So I think it is about really basic education around what an eating disorder looks like.
3: The next roadblock that Dr Sharp told us about is one that we covered way back in the very first episode of this podcast, right back in episode one of season one, The Tyranny of Distance.
4: Particularly if you live outside of main cities, main capital cities, you may struggle to get a service in your area that really understands eating disorders and your support needs.
0: It was quite confronting that we were in a, a regional area where the GPs had no understanding of of our issues and no clear pathway. My middle daughter's experience was now some 16 years ago. She was seeking treatment for quite severe OCD. So we battled through the public system until we could get to a stage that we had access to treatment in Melbourne, which was primarily based on OCD treatment. And we were made aware that her condition may progress and, and if that was the case, she would primarily um, develop an eating disorder. So we had that flagged a little bit. Unfortunately, because the only treatment available for her was in Melbourne, we were back and forth to Melbourne for a number of years. And unfortunately, it did develop into an eating
3: disorder. The feeling of isolation, of being stuck in a place where you can't access the right treatment, is something that has been described by a lot of people who live in regional and rural areas. But recently, it's something that people who live in cities have been experiencing too.
5: But of course, we're also in the middle of COVID lockdown in Sydney. So it's it's just added that additional, additional challenge. My name's uh, Alex. I'm uh, a father of uh, three daughters and um, currently based out of Sydney. Um we've uh, been going through the process for for some time now with uh, with my daughter's um, eating disorder. When my daughter was uh, nine years old, she became very dogmatic um, around, I guess healthy eating exercise. Um she was always an exercise nut. She became very, very focused on, you know, sugar-free eating, healthy eating. And it, uh, over a period of about three years, became, I guess, tighter and tighter and, and more restrictive.
3: As we record this, Alex and his family are stuck together in lockdown in Sydney. But unfortunately, this isn't their first experience with lockdown.
5: We had actually just arrived in Melbourne in in March of, of 2020 and, of course, we went into the COVID lockdown. So, for the space of about two months there, you know, my daughter was Homeschooling, she was uh, with her with her two sisters as well, and um, we were in a small townhouse there in in Melbourne, and quite a tight space going into winter. So you can imagine it's it's not the best environment for you know a teenage someone who's going into puberty. And on top of that, she she couldn't exercise outdoors.
3: After their experience in Melbourne, Alex decided to move the family back to Sydney so that they can access the right care, and things were starting to move in the right direction.
5: Now, at the moment. We currently have her engaged in a out of hospital program, um, which is essentially us rocking up to the hospital once a month for some, you know, some weigh-ins, some obs, uh, a little bit of a talk with uh, with one of the experts there. And um, we also are in between psychological services, so we're trying to engage with a new psychologist at the moment. But of course, we're also in the middle of COVID lockdown. It's just added that additional additional challenge on top of that as well.
3: The impact of COVID on our country hasn't been insignificant. Butterfly reported a surge in causes lockdowns started last year. And over the last 12 months, Australia has experienced a surge of around 40% in eating disorder presentations. And that's not including the people who aren't reaching out for help. And our next roadblock certainly isn't helping with this increased demand.
4: There's also things like a lack of trained uh, clinicians in this space, unfortunately.
0: There weren't any incidents of eating disorders that we were aware of in our area. So therefore, there was no no doctors that we saw that had a sound understanding of what we were going through. Mm. Um, To the point that one GP said, if she's not eating and drinking, that's okay. She will eventually. um, Just leave her be. So (laughs) that stuff that used to make me so angry now and I just look back and go, they just didn't know. They didn't have access to, to the information that they needed. And it was a solo path and there was nothing in an area, in our regional area, that, could give us information that could support us and then you are you're navigating the same problem when we finally got some names in melbourne there's not enough resources there i don't know how many places we rang no no new patients um sorry next next number uh
1: it was mind-blowing Consumers and carers are in the dark a lot of the time around knowing also what options are available to them. You know, it doesn't just have to be seeing a dietitian or a psychologist, you know, there's a whole range of other professionals, even in the private sector and the public sector that they can access. So it's not only the levels of care, but it's the type of professional, peer mentor workers, those kinds of things, recovery coaches. So there's a lot of other avenues for patients, I kind of also think that maybe generally, and I think uh, Butterfly, NEDC and ANZ try really hard to reduce the stigma and to help people understand the illness um, and helping professionals and carers understand that I think is another avenue for us to kind of build capacity within the system.
3: Dr. Hurst just threw out a couple of acronyms which I'll unpack for you. The NEDC is the National Eating Disorder Collaboration, and ANZ is the Australian and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders, which is the group that Dr. Hurst heads up herself. There'll be a little bit more information about both of them at the end of the show. And that brings us to our next roadblock, that is sometimes when the right care is there, it's just too expensive.
4: There's other things like cost. It's certainly not cheap to access services if you're experiencing an eating disorder. You're likely to need a lot of help over potentially a number of years and the cost just mounts up.
2: I was fortunate enough to have private health insurance that when I was an adult meant I could access private healthcare, which not everyone has the financial capacity to do for one. But it also meant that Until I was an adult, I only really received care in a medical setting, and that was when I'd reached the point of being medically unstable and needing to be hospitalised for physical rehabilitation. And the vast majority of eating disorder sufferers don't actually get to that point. So unless you become medically unstable, secondary to eating disorder behaviours, it's so, so hard to get external validation and to feel legitimate in your own suffering.
3: Unfortunately, COVID is one of the roadblocks that we have absolutely no control over. But many of the others are things that we can work on. And Dr Kim Hurst says there are some very encouraging signs at the moment. Things like the introduction of Medicare item numbers for eating disorders and eating disorder specific mental health care plans.
1: Probably at least 10 or 15 years ago, there was such an under-resourcing of professionals that actually understood how to assess, diagnose and treat eating disorders. So I think the system now is starting to actually progress in terms of us getting more clinicians into this space. So things are improving and quietly
3: behind the scenes, lots of things are being done to improve the situation and to get more trained clinicians on our front lines. The organisation that Dr Hurst heads up, that's the Australian and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders or ANZED, is in the process of launching a massive credentialing system in a joint operation with the NEDC, that's the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. This project is being supported by the Australian government. How does it work? Let's let Dr. Hurst explain it.
1: Basically, what we're doing is we want to help um, people that are experiencing eating disorders access the right care at the right time. We want referrers to actually know who to refer to. And we want um, uh, lived experience and consumers and carers know that there is a pathway and a system that's going to support them and guide them so um you know it's a massive project the uh, department of health so the government have um, funded us uh, just recently out of the budget to actually now implement the credential system so that for me is super exciting it includes workforce development um, training and supervision incentives um just a complete kind of overhaul, I guess, of uh the way that uh access and care is going to be provided. Um, wow. yes yeah, it's, it's really like I'm super, super excited by this. I think um we've done enormous amounts of consultation within the sector um with lived experience and they want it. You know, they're they're the driver, they're saying You know, we want to be able to access a system that we can navigate through and know that we're going to get care because early intervention is key, right? So we don't want to be wasting time, um, you know, trying to find someone. We want to find someone and know actually they've got the skills.
3: Having a uniform system that can help patients find the right clinicians at the right time will certainly help to remove some of those roadblocks. And that's just one of the programs that's underway. Lots of stakeholders are working hard to fix the situation as we speak. But let's go back to our lived experience guests and see how they coped with the barriers that they faced at the time.
2: I've been in a place where I was approved and my sickness was validated and people were like, okay you know you do have an eating disorder because you quote unquote look like one or you've you meet the stereotype um but i've also been in the other place where you are quote unquote healthy apparently and you know you don't meet the stereotype and so i knew that no matter where i sat i didn't feel worthy of recovery and i felt so ashamed and so i think the realization came that i was never ever going to satisfy anyone's idea of sick I have to do this for myself because otherwise, if I'm constantly basing my worth on external factors, I'm going to feel constantly unworthy. So that was it. I was like, okay, I've been literally to hell and back because that's where an eating disorder takes you. I, instead of asking myself, am I sick enough? I started asking myself, goodness, haven't I been sick and doing this for long enough? Like, do I not just deserve to get better? Because we do. Oh my goodness! No one deserves to suffer.
0: We had to persevere.
2: I always persevered.
0: Just keep asking questions. Keep ringing who you need to ring. We had to, and, and it panned out in the in the end. It's just difficult, but it's worthwhile. You, you can't not do it. It's unfortunate of all, and I could list, and you could list, and lots of people could relate to all those comments that a medical person or a GP or or anybody has said to you, you know, I was told at one point she'll never get better, why are you bothering? You just retain those things and it either drives you or it squashes you, but um, just persevere and and trust your instincts, really.
5: We've worked very hard to try and be as inclusive as we can and allowing the three of them, I mean, the three of them are very tight-knit together, but they just don't know what's going on in, in their sister's mind. And so we try to explain it to them we try to sit them down and say look this is not something that we want to see you know you guys take on board and that's always a concern of ours is that our other two daughters will take some of that we work with them to understand we talk it through all the time as a family but they see things they've seen the screaming the yelling that they've seen all this and so how do you how do you explain to them what it's all about i think therapists have tried you know they've brought my other two daughters in and tried to explain that and tried to have some conversations, but to be quite frank, we need more of that, a lot more of that.
3: As it stands, we have an increasing demand for services from a system that was already struggling. But there are a few things you can do. Firstly, we're advised to find the right doctor. If you don't have a GP who you feel gets it, look for another one. There are lots of organisations who can link you up with the right doctor, and I'll throw out some details in a few minutes.
4: I think even patients themselves might consider upskilling the person they're talking to their GP and go, hey, have you ever read about this, about eating disorders? You might consider doing that. So I think these learning opportunities can come from anywhere. I think there are people in the media as well, more mainstream media. There are people on social media channels as well, pushing for greater understanding of these misunderstood conditions. So I think There are a lot of pockets really trying to do this well and it's just about people being open to hearing the message.
3: If you know what sort of specialist you need but you can't find one that's available, put yourself on as many wait lists as you can find. Appointments do come up eventually and if you're not on the list, then you're not going to get a call. And while you're waiting, you can start making baby steps towards recovery yourself. The chances are there's a support group near you. And if you can't get to them in person, for whatever reason, a lot of them are being held online at the moment. There's also lots of resources online that you can access from almost anywhere. Stay with us for some more details on those in just a moment. I'd also like to point out that Dr. Gemma Sharp has been working to improve the system herself. She's the brains behind the AI bot called Kit on Butterfly's website. It's a 24-hour service that helps connect people with information they need to get support. And I'll throw out the details for how you can find Kit very shortly. And Dr. Sharp says that on a national level, some really big steps have been made in the last couple of years
4: a wonderful recent example of that is the introduction of the eating disorder plans back in November 2019. There is no way we would have thought in the past that that would ever happen, that eating disorders would have their own specialised plan under Medicare. And it was people lobbying the government, lobbying Medicare to get this done. And I think that was a huge step and that has started momentum in the recognition of eating disorders getting extra treatment, specialized treatment, etc. Uh, so I think that was a huge victory for all of us.
3: If you need support for an eating disorder, you can call the Butterfly National Helpline over the phone on 1800 334673. That's 1800 334673 or 1-800-ED-HOPE, or go to butterfly.org.au. There you'll find heaps of resources, including Dr. Sharp's interactive AI bot called Kit. If you prefer email, that's fine. You can flick a message to support at butterfly.org.au. We also highly recommend you look at the resources offered by other eating disorder organisations. Groups like Eating Disorders Victoria, Eating Disorders Queensland, Eating Disorders Families Australia for support networks or check out the national bodies like the National Eating Disorder Collaboration or Dr. Kim Hurst's Australia and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders. I'll put all the websites and contact details for them in the show notes. The Butterfly Podcast is an Icon Media production for Butterfly Foundation. With special thanks in this episode to Drs. Gemma Sharp and Kim Hurst as well as Imogen, Alex and Jeanette for bravely sharing their story. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much. Wherever they get podcasts.